रहा है हिंदी सिनेमा का सबसे बड़ा ब्लॉकबस्टर तो माकेदार होगा एंटरटेनमेंट जब करण जोहर आयुष्मान खुराना और मनीष पॉल होस्ट करेंगे फिल्म फेयर की शानदार रात फिल्म फेयर के मंच पर होंगे रणबीर कपूर करीना कपूर खान कार्तिक आर्यन वरुण धवन जानवी कपूर और सारा अली खान के इलेक्ट्रीफाइंग परफॉर्मेंसेस तो हो जाइए तैयार फॉर हिंदी सिनेमा बिगेस्ट सेलिब्रेशन वॉट द सिक्सटी नाइन्थ फिल्म फेयर अवार्ड ट्वेंटी विद गुजरात टूरिज्म ऑन संडे एटीन फेब्रवरी नाइन पी एम उंगली ऑन जी टी Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Patricia Bowers' eerie saga of a neighborhood besieged. Face of the foe. Starring Jessica Walter. Joseph Campanella and Judy Kern. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Zero Hour. Sponsored in part by State Farm Insurance and Big Red Chewing Tobacco. This is the Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. Winter at times seems interminable. After the first snowfall, the excitement is gone, and it's all the same. Cold, bleak, and dreary. For Nicole Nugent, a three-week vacation in sunny Jamaica was just what the doctor ordered, and she returned to Montreal well tanned, well rested, well healed. She had missed her friends, and that was good. Friends are everything, but she'd also missed something else—a fourth unsolved, inexplicable murder—and it was bad. It was the fourth such grisly event in a very short period of time. The victims were all women, all belonged to the same church, all lived in the same neighborhood, Nichols. And now Nicole Nugent is spending the evening at home, alone. There's a muffled knocking at the door, and she's looking through the peephole at a face, and one that she suspects might be the face of the foe. The conclusion of our story follows after this word. Hello, my real name is Florencia Vicenta de Garcias Martinez Cardona Moss. No, it's not a new rock group. I'm known professionally as Vicky Carr, but my real message today sings out good news for all of you: a new federal aid program to provide education and training after high school, especially if you don't have the money for it. It's called Basic Grants and helps provide money for full-time students entering for the first time a college or university, vocational school, technical institute, or a hospital school of nursing. It helps you pay for tuition, books, and other expenses. Basic Grants makes it possible now to prepare for the special vocation or career you've been hoping for. And best of all, it's not a loan. That's right. You don't have to pay it back. 
so apply right away. Simply contact the school or college you're planning to enter or post office or write Basic Grants, Box 84, Washington, D.C. Buena suerte, mis amigos. from the door and flattened myself against the wall, unmindful that he couldn't see me. I wasn't going to answer. He all of a terrified me. I remembered the awful look he had given Kathleen Windsor the night she was murdered, and Aunt Emily just a few days before her murder. And then I remembered something else. The time that he had looked at me in the same way. The knocking had stopped. I had been standing against the wall for several minutes. Perhaps he had gone. I looked through the peephole. There was no sign of T. Oliphant. I had a dinner date with Chris before we were to join Julian Brooke and Laura to see the Spanish dance troupe at the club midnight. The festive mood of the evening, however, got off to a slow start. I felt uncomfortably out of sorts with a vague headache that I hoped would not develop into one of my crippling migraines. And Chris was tired from working on his book at such a hard pace. I suspected he was weary of his responsibility for Donald Hamill as well. I always worry a little when I go off and leave him alone. He's a good kid, but so naive and impressionable, he could get into trouble a block from home. I guess that's why Tony Bartha was able to get such a hold over him. Well, at this point, I wouldn't say Donald's his own man. Tony persuaded him to try heroin once, you know. Donald didn't like it. But Tony held the fact that he tried it over his head like a sword. Threatened to tell the police Donald was a junkie if he ever breathed a word about Tony's drug-pushing activities. Is Donald frightened now that he's told the police everything? No, just relieved. Like I say, he's a good kid. I like him. So did Aunt Emily. As soon as Donald knows where he's going... I want to give him her precious red motorcycle. I know she would have wanted him to have it. Oh, he'll love it. Probably almost as much as he loves that guitar of his. When we joined Julian Brooke and Laura in the starlight room, we found Julian preoccupied with the weather, concerned that the snowstorm might prevent his plane from taking off. If it keeps up, I think perhaps I'd better check with the Air Force. The storm should let up by morning. It wouldn't be too much of a problem if your plane couldn't leave till then, would it? No, I suppose not. Well, let's not let a little snow dampen our party. Now, what would you two like to drink? Nicky? Uh, Manhattan, I think. Scotch and soda for me, please. I'll tell you what, I'll go track down our waiter on my way to the phone. I may as well settle this airport business if I can, so we can all relax and enjoy ourselves. Don't be too adamant about leaving tonight, darling. You know, I wouldn't leave at all if I didn't have to. It's too bad he can't wait until tomorrow to leave. He's anxious to be there as quickly as he can. The opening of this new plant is very important to him. Laura was in luck. Julian came back with the word that the airport was socked in by the storm. There wouldn't be a plane out until morning at the earliest. I'd like to say I'm sorry, darling, but I'm not. Now you don't have to dash off before the evening's over. Well, it upsets my plans in Rome a bit, but there's nothing I can do. And, of course, I'm not in any hurry to leave you alone. Ah, no reason, then, why we shouldn't settle down to a pleasant evening. But only a few moments later, Chris was called away from the table to answer a telephone page. Julian had finished his drink and was doodling on a cocktail napkin 
another ship in red ink. When Chris returned, Chris's face was set in a deep, worried frown. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to leave. It's Donald. He's in trouble. Got to get out of this city of night. Find me, oh, find me. My city of light. Agent Darrell Hutchison of Garden City, Georgia, explains why personal service and car insurance is just as important to State Farm Mutual's low rates. We are not always the lowest price that an individual can find for insurance. So I have had people come by that have already gotten prices from other companies. They come by, and this particular time, we were a little higher than they were. But after talking with them, tell them that I can give them one thing that the other company cannot give them, and that is my personalized service. They know that I am here. I'm here to stay as an agent. And these points uh, make a difference. They don't want to be treated as a number. They still want to be treated as an individual, especially when they have a claim problem. They want to be given service because that's what they're paying for. We'll return to our story in a moment. Hi, I'm Pinocchio, the big nose and all that, you know. But seriously, lots of kids don't know about me. How can kids read if they don't have any books? And millions of kids, black, white, red, yellow, brown, all races, live in homes without any books. Getting books into the hands of these girls and boys is what the national program, RIF, Reading is Fundamental, is all about. Here's what RIF has found out. When kids choose the books they want because the subjects interest them and they own the book, that makes reading fun. And when reading is fun, it's just fundamental. Books widen the kids' world and their abilities and their whole life. Every community needs RIF. Find out what you and RIF can do in your community. Just like RIF. Smithsonian Institution, Washington, D.C., 20560. That's RIF, R-I-F, Smithsonian Institution, Washington, D.C., 20560. Right now, if America's to go out thinking, reading is fundamental. I'll be back if I can, or I'll call you later, Muffet. It's all right, Chris. Do whatever you have to. I understand. Look after my girl, will you, Julian? My pleasure, old chap. I watched Chris's big frame weave hurriedly among the crowded tables and disappear. Almost instantly, I wished I had gone with him. I was aware of the fourth chair at the table, now glaringly empty. Laura and Julian were a twosome. They didn't need me. I looked across the table at them when their faces suddenly blurred. I knew right away what was wrong. It was a migraine attack coming on. I had them three or four times a year, and I knew that after my sight blurred, a violent headache and nausea would follow in swift succession. Nikki, what is it? Oh, Laura, it's happening again. No, Nikki, not now, not here. I I'd better go. It's so bright in here, and, and the noise. Well, what is it? What's wrong? Nikki gets these attacks occasionally. Migraine. They're quite painful. She'll need to take the prescription the doctor gave her. It's it's all right. Now, you you, you both stay where you are. I'll, I'll take a taxi. No, Nikki, we'll go with you. Of course. No, Laura. You've been so looking forward to this evening. It's Julian's last night in town. But I know how sick you get. You can't go home alone. I'll, I'll be all right once I get there. 
There's nothing for anyone to do. I'll just take my pills and get into bed. If that's all there is to do, I'll see you home. I can get you there faster than a cab, especially in this store. No, really. I insist. Laura can wait here so she won't miss any of the show, and I'll return as soon as I know you're comfortably bedded down. Are you sure you'll be all right alone, Nicky? Uh, of course. Once the medicine takes hold, I'll, I'll sleep. Help her out quickly, Julian. She looks faint. I'll ask the head waiter to look out for you, Laura, and I'll be back in about 30 minutes. <sighs> We're in for some slow going, I'm afraid. It's bumper to bumper along the strip. I'm all right, Julian. You're being very kind. Just hold on. You'll be home soon. We're here, Nicole. Now, can you make it all right? What? Oh, oh, yes. Here, let me help you. Slowly, please, my head. Oh, it hurts. I'm feeling quite sick. What a shame having something hit you like this. I'll be better soon, after I've taken my tablet. Yes. Well, I'm going to see you comfortably inside before I leave. I fumbled in my purse for my key, but with my blurred vision, I couldn't fit it into the lock. Julian took the key from me, led us into the lobby, and guided me gently to the door of the apartment. There you go. And here are your keys. Oh, thank you, Julian. I'll be all right now. You get back to Laura, she'll be worried. I want to make sure you're settled first. Let me take that wet coat. You better let me help you off with your boots. No, no, I can manage them. I bent down to pull off my boots and felt myself sinking under a wave of nausea and dizziness. Julian caught me. His strong hands were on my shoulders and then suddenly at my throat. Too bad you became interested in China Clippers, Miss Nugent. That was your Aunt Emily's mistake. I don't... I don't understand. Never mind. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters now. Here's tobacco chew and truck driving, Dave Dudley for Big Red Chewing Tobacco. Chauffeur in a big machine, rolling all day. How sweet it is with Big Red. Going over to New Orleans on time all the way. How sweet it is with Big Red. You notice it everywhere. More folks chewing Big Red Chewing Tobacco. Truck stops and the coffee's hot and conversation's fine. Hey, Mike, watch things like Outroof 59. Then you pass Big Red around and the fellas take a chew. How sweet it is with Big Red. You ought to try Big Red chewing tobacco. It's moister, smoother, more satisfying. Got a taste of its own that keeps on tasting good all chew through. Climb on board. Start chewing Big Red chewing tobacco soon. How sweet it is with Big Red. The Zero Hour continues after this. Charlotte, I'm home. The supper's not ready, Chester. Should I go back to the office? No, stay. Hmm. Well, what are we having? Tuna casserole. Sure. 
We had tuna casserole last week. Hey, it's the same one that was some left over. Uh, I'm not hungry. You said we have to start watching our pennies. I would rather starve than eat tuna casserole again. Well, when we got married, you said you loved tuna casserole. Well, before you get married, you love everything. Oh, I'll put it on a different plate. Maybe it'll taste different. Charlotte, you know I hate tuna casserole. Well, close your eyes and pretend it's steak. Sure. Why don't I close my eyes and pretend I'm a retired millionaire and you're the galloping gourmet? Gourmet. Social Security can't help Charlotte's cooking, but it can help Chester's retirement plans. Today, nearly 17 million retired workers and their dependents are getting Social Security retirement benefits. And for nearly everyone 65 or over, Medicare benefits are available to help pay hospital and doctor bills. For more information, call your nearest Social Security office. Julian Brooke was the strangler. His hands were at my throat. I tried to scream. Scream through a windpipe that was being choked off. There was a rushing noise in my ears, and the ugly, distorted face hovering over me began to dissolve. I was falling, falling into a well of blackness. Slowly, I floated back to the surface, hearing before I could see. Sounds of a scuffle, glass breaking, and suddenly, blessedly, I heard Chris's voice. Vicky, Vicky, are you all right? Gradually, light and colors came together, and the scene took shape around me. Julian Brooke was standing in the middle of the living room, flanked by two policemen. There was a trickle of blood at the corner of his mouth, and his hands were manacled. Lieutenant Philippe was there, and Laura, standing off in a corner, motionless as a statue, her face a white blur. The coffee table was overturned, and broken glass littered the floor. Chris was holding me in his arms. It's over, Buffett. It's all over. You'll be all right, mademoiselle. We've called for a doctor. Uh, <clears throat> Don't try to talk now, Nicky. Don't talk, just rest. Uh, Monsieur Galloway is right, mademoiselle. Do not try to talk now. There will be time. Time. Time to sort out the terrible puzzle whirling round in my brain. Charming, well-bred Julian Brooke had tried to kill me. He had killed my Aunt Emily. Why? What did he mean about China Clippers? How did Chris and the police arrive in time to save me? And poor Laura. How was she going to take all this? Somehow that concerned me more than anything else. It's just so hard to believe that it was Julian all along. There are still so many things I don't understand. Oh, I'm not sure I want to. It's all so dreadful. I just thank God you were saved. Everything is still a jumble in my head. I hope Chris gets here soon with Lieutenant Philippe. And then you'll really hear what an utter fool I've been. What do you mean? The money for my restaurant. $50,000. I gave it all to Julian Brooke. Do not worry, Mademoiselle Prescott. Your money is safe and it will be returned to you. Uh, but to begin with, uh, Mademoiselle Nugent... Let us hear the exact words Julian Brooks spoke to you as he was making the attempt on your life. He said, Too bad you became interested in China Clippers, Miss Nugent. That was your Aunt Emily's mistake. Mm -hmm. And you had no idea what he meant by that? I still don't, Lieutenant. Monsieur Galloway will explain. 
You see, Nikki, Julian Brooke thought that you had the sketch. What sketch? Well, let me begin at the beginning, darling. Remember the night after Kathleen Wins' murder? You had the flu when I brought in some Chinese food for us? Yes, I remember. Well, you had just read about the murder in the paper and were pretty upset. You went in to take an aspirin. That's when I noticed the sheet music on your coffee table. Just one sheet. And it had Kathleen Windsor's name on it. She'd just come from choir rehearsal and she had an armful of music and books that she put down on the table. Yes. Well, I thought you were upset enough about the murder. You didn't need anything around to remind you of it. So I just stuck the sheet of music in my pocket. I was wearing an old jacket that Saturday that I haven't worn since. So there was nothing to remind me of the music until last night. What happened last night to remind you of it? I saw a sketch Julian had been doodling at the table, a sailing ship done in red ink. I picked it up. He drew one here when he was waiting for you one night, Laura. I thought it was just a hobby. Ah, and his downfall. You see, Monsieur Galloway here remembered he had seen what he thought was a similar sketch on the back of Kathleen Windsor's piece of sheet music. Which would suggest that Julian Brooke knew her. We had been ferreting about all this time for a man in Kathleen Windsor's life. When Monsieur Galloway informed me of his discovery, I felt certain we'd found him. But, Chris, how did you and the police get here so quickly? How did you even know Julian brought me home? Well, I got to the police station directly from the club and answered a Donald's call, remember? Oh, yes, Donald. Well, the police had finally gotten Tony Barth on a drug charge, and Tony had tried his bit about implicating Donald, but it's okay now. Tony was exposed for what he is, a liar. Donald's in the clear. As it turned out, Monsieur Galloway and I had other fish to fry. When Lieutenant Philippe confirmed my suspicions, I called the club midnight to warn you about Julian. Laura answered the page and told us Julian had taken you home. I took a taxi from the club. And the police and I got here as soon as we could. And you got here just in time. If we hadn't got caught in traffic. Yeah, well, thank God for icy roads. Brooke tried to make a run for it, of course, headed for your balcony. But the lieutenant here brought him down with a beautiful flying tackle. At the expense of your glass coffee table, I'm afraid. But I still don't understand. Why did Julian Brooke try to kill me? When he saw his sketch was gone from the table at the club, he thought you had taken it, that you must have connected it with the sketch on the back of Kathleen Windsor's music, as he knew your Aunt Emily had. Then that's what he meant when he talked about China clippers and Aunt Emily's mistake. Precisely, mademoiselle. He explained to us that he tried to divert your aunt by calling her attention to the sketches of clipper ships on the wall of the Warwick Tea Room. Uh, but these sketches are in black ink of British clipper ships, while his sketch in red ink was of the Flying Cloud, a very identifiable American clipper ship with an angel blowing a trumpet at its bow. Then he knew Aunt Emily was sure to remember where she'd actually seen it. On Kathleen Windsor's music. And he learned that Kathleen Windsor had come here to you directly from her choir practice the night of her murder. Thus he assumed you also must have seen the sketch he had drawn on her music. A murderer shouldn't go around leaving his trademark everywhere. Ah, that isn't the only evidence Monsieur Brooke left around. Because he intended to leave the country that night... He had brought his bag to the club midnight. We found its contents uh, most interesting, particularly those beneath its false bottom. What did you find? For one thing, your money, Mademoiselle Prescott. 
Fortunately, he had not spent it as he had Kathleen Windsor's. You mean he swindled us both in the same way? With the same story, that he needed the money temporarily to open his new furniture plant, uh, but not quite in the same way. With you, Mademoiselle Prescott, his approach had to be more subtle. Thus, he staged the attack on you in the park so that he might become your rescuer. But how did he even know I had $50,000? Hmm. From your unwise advertising in the paper, mademoiselle, he, he first called you in answer to your ad for a restaurant property, do you recall? Yes, I certainly do. I thought he was a practical joker. But the voice, it wasn't Julian's. I'm afraid it was, mademoiselle. Monsieur Brooke is a master of disguises. Another item we found in his bag was a false mustache and a Van Dyke beard. Then the man Aunt Emily saw in the car with Kathleen Windsor was Julian Brooke. Yes, the same man, different name. Kathleen Windsor knew him as Stephen Harcourt, while Elsie Grunberger had met him under his real name, Charles Potter. Julian murdered Elsie Grunberger too? I mean... Charles Potter? Yes, yes. It was the first time he killed. He had to do it to protect his investment in the Windsor woman. Elsie Grunberger had been a friend of the rich widow Potter had fleeced out of her savings. Unfortunately for Elsie, she caught sight of him with Kathleen Windsor one day, and he knew she recognized him, despite his disguise. He followed her home and killed her. Well, then the arrest of Julian Brooke, uh, Charles Potter... Solves three of your murders. What about the fourth, the most recent one? That, regrettably, is still on our books. Charles Potter denies having had anything to do with it. It is a month now since that fateful Saturday when the mask was ripped off Julian Brooke and the face of the foe revealed. Laura has found a location for her restaurant and is hard at work trying to forget all that happened. Meanwhile, I've learned not to judge people by the faces they wear. T. Oliphant may be something of a woman hater, but it turns out that all those brown cartons of his contain toys that he makes and delivers regularly to St. Simon's Parish House as gifts for needy children. Donald Hamill has been placed in a good home where he continues to carry on his love affair with his guitar when he's not vrooming around on Aunt Emily's red motorcycle. The snow lies deep now on the graves of Aunt Emily, Kathleen Windsor, and Elsie Grunberger. But of course, Lieutenant Philippe continues to caution us to lock our doors, reminding us that there is still a murderer loose in Montreal. Asphalt and concrete, neon and steel Nowhere, nowhere, anything real Bolted doors on the houses Shutter doors on the hearts Broken dreams in the concrete You are listening to Mutual's presentation of the Zero Hour. At 19, Jill Kinmont was one of America's top women skiers, till an accident on an icy slope left her paralyzed. Now, 17 years later, she's a teacher, a good teacher. 
I guess you can say I've overcome my handicap, but I couldn't have done it alone. I had family, friends, people who accepted me, believed in me, and helped me believe in myself. Yet there are millions of handicapped people in this country who aren't getting the acceptance they deserve because some people think that a handicapped person can't hold down a job, can't pay the rent, can't learn, can't be a human being. Well, unless you recognize that we are human beings with feelings, with skills, with a sense of responsibility, then you are adding a handicap we can't overcome. This public service message brought to you on behalf of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare and the Advertising Council. Sir, uh, we're asking people what they know about different organizations. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll never join anything again. No, we're not asking you to join. See, I'm a disgruntled member of the Memo of the Month Club. Now, my March selection was supposed to be a cuddly raccoon. Instead, they delivered a new, and I live in an apartment. Man, a gnu's a big antelope. Uh, sir, we're asking about organizations like the American Cancer Society. I never joined them, but I contribute a lot. Good, because the American Cancer Society needs plenty of support for all the things they're in. For instance, there are numerous educational activities, like telling people how important checkups are and knowing cancer's warning signals. That helps save lives. I thought the Cancer Society was mostly research. No, it's service, education, research, and then some. Well, maybe I'll join the American Cancer Society. Good. The Society needs volunteers as well as contributions. You know what my June mammal selection was? A South American sloth. Hangs around upside yeah. down all day long for my Jeez. chandelier, my Jeez. drapes, the wall sconce. Imagine oh, a madam, sloth uh, on a sconce. Or was the sconce on the sloth? I don't know, but they were that concludes this week's production of the Zero Hour, Patricia Power's Face of the Foe. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time, Monday through Friday. So, on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. Today's episode brought to you in part by State Farm Insurance and Big Red Chewing Tobacco. This is the Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. You have been listening to The Zero Hour, a presentation of the Mutual Broadcasting System in association with Hollywood Radio Theater. Heard every weekday at this time. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.